It's history. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine, and remember that we are not descended from fearful men. It's hardcore history. A racist. A colonialist. An alcoholic. A bad parent. A reactionary. Militaristic. A megalomaniac a shameless self-promoter and self-advertiser. These are just some of the criticisms that have been leveled at Winston Churchill throughout history. And I wanted to make sure before we got into the topic of that fantastically interesting person's life, I thought I would say right off the bat that there were some negative appraisals of it. Because I'm going to have a hard time being unbiased in this program because I happen to be a huge admirer of the figure that is Winston Churchill. So I wanted everyone to realize that there have been more than 500 biographies written about this man. And you don't get to that number of books written about a single figure without having all sorts of different interpretations out there. And not all of them are positive. And some of these negative sides to his persona can get lost when you begin to delve into the myth that is Winston Churchill. And I say myth not because it's not true, but because any time you get these figures at his level of greatness, it's inevitable that they are going to be made bigger than life. And Winston Churchill was as big as life gets. Easily one of the figures uh, that was the greatest of the 20th century, one of the really momentous centuries in human history, recorded human history. Easily one of the greatest. One of the greatest Britons of all time. And one of the people you would think would have to be on your top five list of people you'd invite to dinner if you could invite anyone from history, you could. Later on in the show, we'll go through some of his quotes. He's one of the great quote masters of all time. And since I think it's really hard to get a feel for someone who's had 600 or 500 biographies written about them, it's hard to get a handle on who this complex individual really was. Sometimes people like to do psychological sort of interpretations and stuff to try to get closer to who the real person was. But I think the way to get closest to who they were or at least how they wanted to be perceived as who they were, is their own words whenever you have a chance to use them. And even though we have an inferior delivery to Winston Churchill, his words might rescue us a little bit. They're fantastic. You could just have a book of Winston Churchill quotes, and not only would you feel inspired, but you would laugh as well. He had a great wit, and... It seems to me that this whole ability to speak as he did was wrapped up in this great figure who became Winston Churchill. There's a quote where he had said once that of all the skills you would like to have as a human being, oratory ability had to be at the top of the list. And he was saying that you could lose your office, you could lose your friends, you could lose your power, but if you can still speak, you're going to always be formidable. That's not a direct quote, but you get the meaning of what he was saying. 
people have in some ways forgotten the power of human speech and the ability to move other human beings with your rhetoric forgotten what a big deal that is remember the pen is mightier than the sword and the person that can both think up the ideas and deliver them in ways that move people to action have always fascinated me in addition Winston Churchill's one of those figures that you look at and it's really hard not to think that human beings have a huge impact on the way history goes when you look at people like Winston Churchill or his prime nemesis in life Adolf Hitler. Those are two figures from history that those who propose that the great man theory of history is really correct like to use as examples. Because hard to see any of our history as anywhere near the same without those two figures. Hard to see other people step in and play those roles if history is just a bunch of trends and movements rather than great individuals. That's the other theory of history, by the way, that's supposed to be the opposite of the great man theory of history. Great man theory of history says human beings are the ones that push the events and outcomes. They're the prime movers that determine direction and force in history. The other theory has always been that trends and forces build up and create the conditions necessary for these people to exert their role as individuals. I mean... Do you have a Winston Churchill as we know him today if you don't have a second world war for him to use as the backdrop that is the stage that is his life? If any of us were casting a play about our lives, if you could put World War II behind it, it might be more dramatic right from the start, wouldn't it? Hitler himself is supposed to have said, who would speak of Churchill? If not for me, who would speak of Churchill? Implying that, listen, I created the war that created that guy that everyone's talking about today. I think it's probably a safe bet to say that history is really a combination of the great man theory and the trends and forces history theory working together. They impact each other and play off each other. Churchill does something that no other person but Churchill would do, which impacts these forces and movements and trends that are already impacting him. There's an interplay, I think, between events and forces. I think that's pretty obvious to us now, this great man, trends and forces, face-off, in which history is correct, is a little old-fashioned now. But when you pick out the individual figures that have exerted the most personal force on history, hard to pick someone, besides maybe a, an Adolf Hitler, that's had more of an influence on events than Churchill. We history lovers love a life well-lived, don't we? And you've heard that at funerals before, haven't you? So-and-so, the deceased, had a life well-lived. And history people tend to be fascinated by the figures you could point to that so obviously had a life well-lived. And by that we mean a person who seems to take their natural talents as far as they can. People who overcome the setbacks that they get dealt with in life. People who seize every opportunity that they see in life and do the most with it. And people that cram the most achievements they can into their given lifespan. It's hard for history people not to really admire folks like that. And Winston Churchill has to be in the top five examples of lives well lived. 
And he had a lot going for him in that regard, it must be said. Because here's a guy who lived to be 90 years old and who started achieving from a pretty early age. He got pretty far pretty fast, I guess it's safe to say. He's 19, 20, 21 years old. He starts impacting the world scene, and he doesn't stop until he's 80 years old. That's when he gave up the second prime ministership. He was running Great Britain at 80 years old. And that whole period of time, he's impacting world events. You have a lot of time to build up a lot of accomplishment. To get an idea of how much history that lifespan spanned, Think about this, and I hadn't thought about it this way till one of the Churchill biographies I was reading brought it up. Winston Churchill was born 10 years after the American Civil War ended. He died right around the time Malcolm X was assassinated. 1874, I believe it was, to 1965. Think of all the events that occurred in that time span, and think about all the changes in human life that that saw. Winston Churchill, ladies and gentlemen, participated in the last great cavalry charge in British history. He was at the Battle of Omdurman, fought in what's currently the Sudan. And he rode with a regiment of British cavalry that charged the enemy with lances. The British suffered somewhere under 100 casualties at the Battle of Omdurman. The enemy suffered near 10,000 dead. And Winston Churchill was not only an observer, not only charged with that cavalry in that battle, but killed at least three of the enemy himself face to face. He got his nose into history as a player in world events then and there, and he never had a desire to give it up. He thought war exhilarating. And in the writings that he penned after these events, you can hear it. You read what he wrote about the Battle of Omdurman from his perspective, sitting there, seeing the enemy rise out of the sand with their banners all flying in the wind. He compared it to what it must have looked like at the Battle of Hastings with the banners of the Normans and the Saxons blowing in the wind of some great medieval conflict that was about to erupt with his cavalry about to charge and these people out of history books about to charge him. And that's another thing actually that I admire about Winston Churchill that's sort of a personal admiration issue. Winston Churchill was a writer and he wrote about history most often now, sometimes it was history that he had participated in, and there's nothing wrong with that. Everybody acknowledges that those who participate in historical events are valuable um, sources. Normal to get a book by someone who participated in something, and they're telling you about their version of events. And so when Winston Churchill wrote about his decision-making in the Second World War, it seems totally natural. But Churchill also wrote conventional histories. One of his most famous is a history of the English-speaking peoples. And this was the sort of thing that could get him in trouble with traditional academic historians. It's a little like practicing medicine without a license to write history when you don't have a degree or any sort of advanced training in history. 
And I like that about Churchill for a number of reasons. First of all, he knew it too. Felt a little maybe self-conscious about doing it. Because in the introduction of the book, he says, quote, This book does not seek to rival the works of professional historians. It aims rather to present a personal view. End quote. And one of the books uh, that I was reading in order to do this program today quoted his colleague, Clement Attlee, who noted that the book might also have been called Things in History Which Have Interested Me. And this touched me on a personal level because here I am doing a podcast. I'm not an academic historian. I'm a little like a guy who's practicing medicine without a license. And yet, what Churchill was doing by adding the personal view as opposed to the academic view is as old as mankind, isn't it? How has human history been transmitted from the dawn of time up until just recently? Well, actually, is still transmitted in some parts of the world and some more primitive cultures. They transmit history orally. They'll tell you about past events and past figures and the drama of history. It's called oral history, the oral tradition, right? And while we desperately need our academic historians to push the envelope of knowledge on history, expand the boundaries of what we know about the past, I think sometimes that's come at the expense of traditional oral history, which is popular history, which is history that the average person can find stimulating because it's in our genes and blood to want to know about our heritage, for example, our roots, where we come from, and what it's all about. I think people are able to naturally draw a connection between past events and how they impact the now, and it's valuable knowledge, and people recognize that, I think, innately. You see that in all the cultures of the world that still transmit history orally. And these podcasts are an example of the oral tradition. So while we need that academic history more than ever, actually, I think there's a place for a history podcast done by someone practicing medicine without a license. And we may change the title of this show to Things in History Which Have Interested Me. So another reason that I was able to touch base or connect with Winston Churchill. But in a way, he's a little like a mirror for a lot of history people. Because if you read about his life, you'll find things, I think, where you make a personal connection. Another place I made a personal connection with him was the very first time I was exposed to Winston Churchill's life at all. My mom had brought a book to me when I was about five years old about his life. And she began reading it to me at the first chapter. And I now realize as an adult why she had picked up this book. Because Winston Churchill had had a rough childhood. He had a tough time in school. He dealt with all sorts of setbacks as a youngster. And my mom was reading this stuff about Winston Churchill's struggles as a way to help me through mine. As a person to inspire us and to show us that tough stuff could be overcome. Because, of course, once you get past chapter one and you keep going and going and going, this ugly duckling turns into a swan later on in the story. Churchill overcomes all of these problems of his youth to shine later in life. And he himself, I think, would love 
that he was forming that sort of an inspiration for others to achieve because he himself was inspired by reading the history of great men and great deeds before his time. What we're doing by talking about Churchill as an inspiration is what he was doing when he not only looked back into history, but eventually later wrote about it, and he wrote about it with the enthusiasm of a person who is in love with it, and in love with it for the, for the reasons that average people can so connect with. It's who we are. If you can tie it to current events, it makes sense in the drama of it all, and the romance of it all, and all of the same elements of theater, which intrigue us on television shows, and plays, and entertainment going back forever is present in history. All that has to happen is someone has to be able to bring that to life, a dramatist, if you will. And when you read Churchill's history, not only is he a great dramatist, but you get the, re the reasons are clear why he is. It's because that's how he feels about history. He's writing it as a person who's transmitting his love of these events to you. And Churchill, from minute one, knew he was going to play that role. This is another thing that fascinates me about the guy. He not only could take inspiration from these historical figures he read about, but he was sure he was going to be like them and one of them. And this is something that's not that uncommon, to have a sense of your own destiny in these great historical figures. Not only Churchill, but Hitler, his main adversary, had this quality, a feeling of destiny that you were born to do something big. And not just that, but to have the ability to feel yourself in the flow of destiny, to feel the hand of destiny pushing at your back while it's doing it. There was a great quote from Churchill when he was just taking over in 1940 the reigns of Great Britain at their lowest point in the Second World War, when they stood alone against Adolf Hitler after France had fallen. Churchill gets the job as the prime minister, and he writes, I felt as if I were walking with destiny, and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and this trial. That's pretty dramatic stuff. But it's true. He knew he was going to be there. And that's an amazing thing to think about a person who's born with that sense of destiny. As I said, Hitler had it too. One of the things that has always fascinated me about Alexander the Great is that even 2,300 years after the man lived, you can see from the chronicles about his life that he had that same feeling of walking with destiny. And I think that it's not that hard of a feeling for average people to get in touch with either. I think we all have moments in our lives where we, it's almost like a sense of deja vu, but about our place in history instead, where you feel like, wow, this is where I'm supposed to be at this time in this place. And all of the things that I have in my life in terms of personal qualities are geared toward this job it must be destiny. Well, a lot of these great figures in history feel that way all the time. Churchill actually wrote his mother, when he was a soldier, one of those don't worry mom sort of letters. And in it he said, I'm so conceited that I do not believe the gods would create so potent a being as myself for so prosaic an ending. So he didn't lack in ego. If you want to read a great book on Churchill to get an idea of what made him tick and to sort of get a handle on him without having to read a six-volume set of books, 
go pick up a relatively new work on him. It's called 40 Ways to Look at Winston Churchill, A Brief Account of a Long Life by Gretchen Rubin, and it's a tiny book. But what she's done is take the major parts of Churchill's life and then sort of tell you what the arguments pro and con, this or that are, and break that down for you instead. So you don't have to read 600 biographies. She'll tell you what the general viewpoints on all these pivotal questions of Churchill are. For example, she's got one chapter on the question of Churchill's alcoholism. And in one half of the chapter, it's entitled, Winston Churchill was an alcoholic. And she breaks down the various arguments and viewpoints biographers have made, asserting that he was. And then the second half of the chapter will be something like, Winston Churchill was not an alcoholic. And she'll go down and break down the arguments from the other biographers and people who've written about him and the, what the other evidence shows. And she does that with many different areas of his life. It's a wonderful book, very small, easy to read. And after you read it, you will be a Winston Churchill fan. It's one of those kinds of books. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons why is there's a great quote section in the book of his of quotes that he made. Uh, he's a natural quote master. And they really do give you a window into this interesting, belligerent, funny, old world man. Now, of course, what made Churchill the great man that he is are the events that he took part in. And he took part in a lot of events. Here was a guy who took part in the Battle of Omdurman, as we said, who covered the Boer War in South Africa as a journalist when he was a very, very young man, right after getting out of the service. And he was actually captured by the Boers, who were South African Dutch colonists. And he was put in a Boer prison camp. He escaped. He had been ambushed, by the way, by a Boer military party. It involved a capturing of a train. There was It was a really dramatic story. But he manages to escape from the Boer prison camp as fate would have it, knocks on the door of the only home with English people in it for about 20 miles around. He's in enemy territory, knocks on the one door where he could find help, finds help, is on his way back home and telegraphs ahead of time to the press, making sure that they'll be there to meet him, that they know this great story that's happened to him, and he's got an impromptu speech ready to go. Those are some of the things, by the way, where he gets that self-advertiser and self-promoter tag attached to his name for. I mean, here's a guy who is the first Sea Lord of the Admiralty, which is the highest position in the British Navy. It's like the Secretary of the Navy in the United States would be. But remember, Britain was the preeminent power in the world, and all of that power rested on their sea power. So now he's the guy in charge of Britain's sea power, when Britain rules the waves, and he's not 40 yet. 1911, he got that job. The First World War breaks out, and Churchill is involved in the uh, Dardanelles disaster, which was the Gallipoli campaign, which was um, after the trench warfare had broken out in Europe. Churchill was one of those who thought it was suicide to simply bash yourself against the enemy's defenses all day long and was looking for a way around the front, figuring if we could just find a nice chinky opening somewhere where we could get in a chink in the armor, we could 
get this war over with. And he thought landing troops in Turkey would do that. That whole thing turned into a disaster. It hurt Churchill in many ways, and he was forced to resign as first Sea Lord of the Admiralty. It was a scandal. His life took a turn for the worse at that point. But Churchill made the most of it. He ended up going and fighting on the Western Front for several months. You think about this. The first Sea Lord of the Admiralty loses his job, puts on the uniform, goes into the trenches with the lice and the rats and the artillery and everything. After that, he starts working on ideas to break the trench warfare stalemate, which, of course, was the whole idea behind the Dardanelles campaign to begin with. And he becomes one of the primary architects of a new weapon of war we now call the tank. Winston Churchill did that. So when the First World War ended, Churchill found himself in a place that was tough for him to be. Peace. He was so obviously created to be a war leader, his temperament was such that the very things that made him so remarkable when the chips were down and conflict was going on made it tough for him in peacetime all his life. He was not the greatest of compromisers. He was not one of these people who was able to work with those he disagreed with that well or tone down his beliefs or convictions as is sometimes necessary in the sorts of governments he was operating in. As a matter of fact, he had a bad reputation all through the 1930s for being the person who was a warmonger, was what a lot of people thought. Because all during the 30s, when Great Britain, among other countries, is trying to figure out a way for the world to stay peaceful, there's all sorts of crises going on, and the British, among other nations, are trying to keep the peace, try to keep the League of Nations afloat. And here's Churchill warning about this obscure new leader called Hitler of the terrible things that Nazism, as he called it, would lead to, and about the dangers of German rearmament and militarism. It was stuff nobody in the leadership of Great Britain wanted to hear. Above all, I fear they would say, you are weak and we are strong. After all, my friends, only a few hours away by air, there dwells a nation of nearly 70 millions of the most educated, industrious, scientific, disciplined people in the world who are being taught from childhood to think of war as a glorious exercise and death in battle as the noblest fate for man. There is a nation which has abandoned all its liberties in order to augment its collective strength. There is a nation which with all its strength and virtue is in the grip of a group of ruthless men preaching a gospel of intolerance and racial pride unrestrained by law, by parliament, or by public opinion. In that country all pacifist speeches, all morbid war books are forbidden or suppressed and their authors rigorously imprisoned. From their new table of commandments they have omitted. Thou shalt not kill. And Churchill took such flack for uttering it. And yet he kept on. He could have shut up. Everybody's thinking he's crazy. You just stop talking that way, you'll get your reputation back. But he wouldn't. And it's interesting, by the way, that not only was he right about predicting the German menace nearly a decade before it was the real German menace, he did the same thing in the Cold War. He's the guy who gave the famous 
Stettin to Baltic speech, where he said an iron curtain was descending across Europe. That was Churchill predicting the Cold War that would break out a few years later. Again, he was very had a lot of foresight when it came to that sort of thing. Now, Churchill's qualities that really mattered, that made him a great figure of history, that allowed him to impose his will on events, was the stuff that came out when Britain was at war. Churchill was belligerent by nature. He was a fighter. And Great Britain did not have a lot of fighters in the leadership at that time, which is one of the reasons you think of Churchill as being a unique figure, because if there hadn't been a Winston Churchill, who would have played that role at that time? I and mean, what a role he played. When you see something that is born to do what they're doing, it's a wonderful thing to see. Again, something else that fascinates, I think, history people about Churchill is see he was so obviously doing what he was supposed to do. Sometimes I look at animals that are bred to do something. I love dogs, and I'll look at a dog doing something it was bred to do, and it's amazing to watch them in, in action. The melding of purpose and mission with talents and ability is a marvel to behold. And Churchill in 1940, when he took on the job of prime minister, when it was now his job to deal with this enemy that he had warned everyone about for so long, he seemed positively gleeful at the opportunity. Later in life, when people asked him what moment he'd like to return to, if he could return to any in his life, and he said unhesitatingly, every time we're told, 1940. Having received His Majesty's commission, I have formed an administration of men and women of every party and of almost every point of view. We have differed and quarreled in the past, but now one bond unites us all, to wage war until victory is won, and never to surrender ourselves to servitude and shame, whatever the cost and the agony may be. Now, 1940 was a terrible time for Great Britain. 1940 was when the unthinkable happened, when the Germans invaded France in May 1940, and France fell fast. Now, let's understand what the mental thinking of the time was. France had held off the Germans for years, only a generation before in the First World War, lost millions of people, never gave up. France was a martial nation at the time. When people thought of the greatest military nation in 1939, they thought of France. When people talked about who the greatest army in the world was, it was the French army that was the greatest army in the world, in everyone's mind. Their equipment was still thought to be the best in the world. Their soldiers thought to be the best fighters, with a natural offensive spirit, and tons of defenses that were also built up over the intervening war years to prevent another First World War from happening, right? The Maginot Line and all those defenses that were built up. So you have the greatest army in the world with the Maginot Line there to help, with the British people as their allies, and they fall in a month, practically. And it's at this time that Churchill takes power, and when the French 
call him up. The French military command and leadership calls him up to tell him that France is finished and that the Germans have broken through and that not only are the French going to come to terms, but that the British should really think about coming to terms too because it's just a matter of time. If we're falling, what's going to happen to you was the attitude of the time. And Winston Churchill told them, whatever you may do, we shall fight on forever and ever and ever. Think about that for a minute. That's not for public consumption. That's not a speech to get applause out in the public square. You're talking from one leader to another. Inside stuff, the public will never know about it. And what do you tell him? Whatever you may do, we shall fight on forever and ever and ever. Remember, we shall never stop, never weary, and never give in. And that our whole people and empire have bowed themselves to the task of cleansing Europe from the Nazi pestilence and saving the world from the new dark ages. Do not imagine, as the German-controlled wireless tells you, that we English seek to take your ships and colonies. We seek to beat the life and soul out of Hitler and Hitlerism. That alone, that all the time, that to the end. Who else in Britain at that time is going to play that role and mean it? The, um, there was a quote in the Gretchen Rubin book that I told you about, 40 Ways to View Winston Churchill, that has someone telling him years after the war, you gave the British people courage. And he answered back, I didn't give them courage. I helped them to focus theirs. He was the lightning rod that Britain rallied around at a time when there wasn't good news to rally around instead. The very qualities that had made Churchill hard to deal with in peacetime were now exactly what he needed in wartime. And not only that, he had one other quality that is not focused on enough in my mind that was also something he was born with and that turned out to be a huge advantage in his life to allow him to complete this mission he seemed to have always perceived for himself. Churchill was half American. Winston Churchill's mother was the daughter of an American millionaire. Churchill felt himself half American, and when he was looking around in 1940 for the weapons that he could use to strike back at this enemy that seemed so overwhelming that they had just destroyed France in a month, he looked over the Atlantic and he saw the United States. And he was half American, and it was just one of the things that made him feel connected enough to reach out. And without saying, help us, said, help us. He knew the American people. He had visited the United States. He had a connection to the way they thought. And when you listen to his speeches, you can hear him use it all. The fact that my American forebears, after so many generations, played their part in the life of the United States, and that here I am, an Englishman, welcomed in your midst, makes this experience one of the most moving and thrilling in my life, which is already long and has not been entirely uneventful. I, I wish, I 
wish indeed. They didn't want someone who was asking for someone to come and rescue them. The American people respected strength. And Churchill got up there and said, Give us the tools and we'll finish the job. Winston Churchill, in my mind, and this is just my belief, is the reason the United States got in to the Second World War and fought Germany. Now, that's a profound thing that most people will disagree with. But think about this. The reasons that Franklin Roosevelt escalated American involvement in the Second World War before we were really into the war had to do with Churchill. Now, obviously, there were good foreign policy reasons, but it was Churchill who every time something seemed destined to derail the United States helping before they were legally allowed to be involved, Churchill made the extra effort, utilizing everything he knew about America, his own feeling of Americanness. He bridged the gap personally to see to it that the United States, no matter what happened, felt that Europe's war was their war too. And when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, Winston Churchill saw to it that the United Kingdom declared war on the Japanese even before the Americans did. And even though British interests had also been attacked, Churchill made it a point to cite the American casualties and damage as part of the reason for Britain's action. As a way of saying, your enemies are our enemies and we're in this together. And remember, America really, had they wanted to, could have simply seen the Pacific War as their own war, a war of the United States against Japan. It was Winston Churchill who, working a whole year ahead of time before Pearl Harbor, saw to it that the United States considered what was going on in Europe to be their war too. And so much so that the policy that the United States adopted once they were in the war was that they were going to take care of Germany first. Japan may have bombed us at Pearl Harbor, but it was Hitler who was going to go first. And you don't think Winston Churchill had a little bit going on in his own mind to see to it that that happened? There's a great quote. It was actually something he wrote, not a quote, where he summed up his emotions after he'd heard about the attack on Pearl Harbor. He said, or wrote, No American will think it wrong of me if I proclaim that to have the United States at our side was to me the greatest joy. Once again in our Long Island history, we should emerge, however mauled or mutilated, safe and victorious. We might not even have to die as individuals. Hitler's fate was sealed. As for the Japanese, they would be ground to powder, he wrote. So, if Churchill indeed had been the real reason that the United States got into the war when they did, were as prepared, remember it was an isolationist nation, when Franklin Roosevelt started gearing up the mechanics of the public relations campaign that helped set the stage so that the United States was ready to have a war with Germany after we'd just been bombed from an enemy on the other side of the world. And Roosevelt's decision to do that was in large measure connected to Churchill's efforts to get him to do that. And if Churchill had indeed played that role, then he won Great Britain's freedom for sure right then and there. He could sit back in his chair and feel comfortable now that no matter what happened to Great Britain as the war raged, they would win. And as he said, they might not even have to die as individuals, which shows you how ready they were to die as individuals. 
shows you that Churchill fought if the U.S. hadn't gotten into the war and Britain had had to stave off Nazi Germany alone, that they might have had Germans fighting in London streets against everyone, including Winston Churchill. It is hard to put yourself in their shoes and realize the danger that they felt they faced. And what a relief it must have been to know that you now had a huge friend helping you. Winston Churchill being half American couldn't have hurt. Now, when we started this show, we started with some of the critiques of Winston Churchill. Character flaws or negative things that aren't often brought up when the myth of Winston Churchill is dealt with. Well, one of the other criticisms of Churchill is similar to a criticism that Roosevelt and Harry Truman have in this country. The question of responsibility for some of the tactics that were used in fighting the Second World War. Because in dropping the atomic bomb, Harry Truman has had people criticize him ever since 1945, suggesting that it was unnecessary, civilians didn't need to die, and that in one way or another, he was a war criminal for doing so, for waging war against civilians. The same criticism has been leveled at Churchill, that the bombing of German cities, for example, was a war crime, and that he was a bad person to do it. But even Churchill had his misgivings at times, and I always say, it's impossible to put yourself in other people's shoes throughout history. But Churchill said in 1943, while watching a film about the bombing of Germany, in Gretchen Rubin's book, it says a policy he supported, he exclaimed, quote, are we beasts? Are we taking this too far? End quote. He says, I hate nobody except Hitler, and that is professional. Gretchen Rubin's book goes on to say that in February 1945, at the end of the bitter war, he wrote his wife, I'm free to confess to you that my heart is saddened by the tales of the masses of German women and children flying along the roads everywhere in 40-mile-long columns to the west before the advancing armies. I'm clearly convinced, he wrote, that they deserve it, but that does not remove it from one's gaze. The misery of the whole world appalls me, he said. So he felt these things. When we read some quotes from him in a minute, you'll see the complexities of his nature. Here was a man who loved war for the feeling of maybe the adrenaline rush, but certainly for the feeling that he was living history. He's been quoted as saying he wouldn't give up the feeling for anything on earth of being at the center of human events and war being the most dramatic of human events. Churchill said once that war is man's natural profession, that and gardening. I think it was profession that he said. But at the same time, you can see that Churchill was appalled by what the, the violence of war wrought. He liked war for all of the traditional things that we don't think about anymore, the heroism, the valiantry, the excitement, the pageantry, all the things that were part of that cavalry charge that he participated in at Omdurman. And yet, he could see the suffering that war wrought. There are other people throughout history that saw war similarly, that felt a draw and an attraction to it, and at the same time were repulsed as any human being with a heart would be. 
Churchill wasn't a cold-blooded killer. He was just a man that had the ability to do what the times required and had seen himself playing that role since he was a little child. I see Churchill personally as the equivalent of one of the Native Americans' war chiefs. The Native American tribes often had two different leaders. They'll have someone who ran the tribe in peacetime and someone who, when it was time to go to war, would lead the war. And the idea behind it was that different sorts of characteristics and qualities are required for each job. I would make the case to you that Winston Churchill was Britain's war chief. And the very qualities that made it tough for him to operate in peacetime made him the obvious candidate for the job in wartime. Including the fact that he liked it. That he fed off of it. That the very things that would wear down someone else in his position made him feel exalted in the role. And it was only the times in Winston Churchill's life where he felt removed from his ability to play that role that he is most down, most depressed, and most unhappy in life. He said in 1940, when he assumed the prime ministership of Great Britain, at Britain's lowest point in the war, the point where British people thought they actually might die defending Britain from German landings, who would want to be the prime minister of Britain then? Winston Churchill. He said, I felt as if I were walking with destiny. And all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and this trial. What General Vagon has called the Battle of France is over. The battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty, and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. That's a man who's born for the moment. Now, one of the ways that Winston Churchill motivated himself and one of the things that inspired him to become the man he became were quotes from other people who had been great before him. One of the quotes by Churchill is that it is a good thing for the uneducated man to read books of quotation, 
The quotations often engraved upon the memory give you good thoughts. Well, let me read you some quotations by Winston Churchill that are inspiring, insightful, and sometimes just very, very funny. And I encourage you to go find a book that has a lot of quotes by Churchill or go online and read them and see if that doesn't give you perhaps a clearer, more well-rounded view of the man than any of the biographies that try to do so in long form. He said during the Second World War when fighting the Germans, we shall show mercy, but we shall not ask for it. He said, I like pigs. Dogs look up to us. Cats look down on us. Pigs treat us as equals. He said, I'm certainly not one of those who need to be prodded. In fact, if anything, I am the prod. He said, megalomania is the only form of sanity. That might give you a little insight into his character. He said, there's no finer investment for any community than putting milk into babies. He also said, all newborn babies look like me, which was as true as the first statement. There's a conversational quote where Lady Astor says to him, Winston, if I were your wife, I'd put poison in your coffee. And Churchill said back, Nancy, if I were your husband, I would drink it. He's famous for saying, if you're going through hell, keep going. He said, I'm ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is ready for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. He said about the uh, United States, the Americans will always do the right thing after they've exhausted all the alternatives. In 1936, Churchill said of colleague Stanley Baldwin, quote, occasionally he stumbled over the truth, but hastily picked himself up and hurried on as if nothing had happened. He said, never stand when you can sit, and never sit when you can lie down. At a dinner party, guests answered in turn the question, if you could not be who you are, who would you like to be? When Churchill's turn came, he turned to his wife and said, Mrs. Churchill's second husband. When an aide returned one of Churchill's memos with a note correcting a sentence that Churchill had ended with a preposition, that's a little cheeky, don't you think? Churchill wrote back, quote, This is the sort of pedantic nonsense up with which I will not put. I also liked, in Gretchen Rubin's book especially, some of the quotes about Churchill by other people, giving you a little insight into what he was like on a personal level. First of all, he worked these amazingly weird hours, so sometimes he would call these meetings at like 3 a.m., and one British general is quoted in the book as saying that he was being addressed by the prime minister. The prime minister was wearing one of his traditional silk, gaudy bathrobes, eating a sandwich and skipping around the house occasionally to the rhythm of the gramophone, which is, you know, his era's version of a CD player. And you think of Winston Churchill also as this well-dressed, noble British figure, but apparently he used to like to hold a lot of meetings in his bed, which apparently was filled with chintz everywhere, in his scarlet bathrobe adorned with dragons and other big figures first thing in the morning over orange juice not to be awakened by the way before 8 a.m. unless the British Isles were actually being invaded again there's funny little things about the man 
that round out his character and make him one of these all-around interesting figures. You can study someone like Adolf Hitler as well and find another man of destiny who's very interesting in so many ways, but he's so much more one-dimensional than Winston Churchill, whose humor, like most of us, is what humanizes him in our minds. And reading his actual quotes are what gives you an insight into his humor. And I realize that I've only scratched the surface in talking about Churchill today, but that's inevitable when you're talking about a person who's had 500 or 600 biographies written about them to think that in 45 minutes you could cover very much. I just wanted to give you some of my thoughts on Churchill. If you haven't been exposed to much Winston Churchill, maybe just a taste of Winston Churchill. Something to get hardcore fans excited enough to go out and buy Gretchen Rubin's new book on him so they can get all turned on again. And something to get people that didn't know how much they'd be interested in a guy who felt his destiny his whole life long, who overcame all of his early problems in life to turn it around into one of those lives that had been lived well, as we said at the beginning of the show, something to be emulated and imitated, and a person who still inspires today. As I said, I think that's the part that would make Churchill the happiest, that he had become the sort of historical figure that inspires others to greatness just as he himself had been inspired to greatness by the historical figures before him. If you would like to help spread the word about hardcore history, vote for the show on podcastalley.com. Get more hardcore history at dancarlin.com.